The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. celebrate Advent, Dr. Walker opened our time in the Gospel of Luke with a sermon titled, The First Signs of Hope. This week, we'll see how those first signs of hope were put into effect by a second announcement that proved to be the best news ever. Follow along as I read from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through verses 56. If you don't have your own Bible, we provide them for you in the pew. And in that Bible, it's on page 855. I'll be reading from Luke 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears... The baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, 
From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now I just finished reading the best, most disruptive news ever in all of history. And yet this morning... No doubt many of us are feeling a little bit tired, maybe a little bit sleepy, probably feeling tranquil, relaxed, maybe even sentimental at singing some of these Christmas hymns. But I assure you, I assure you that that's not how anyone in the story felt. In college, I had a friend who regularly missed his 8 a.m. class. He was working late hours, he was serving in a youth ministry, he was running himself ragged, and every morning his alarm would go off at 7 a.m., loudly, with the buzzer, not the music version, the buzzer. And yet he would hit the sleep button again and again and drift gently back to sleep. And when frustrated hallmates complained, he would insist that he, he really didn't hear his alarm, and in fact, that, that annoying booming sound would just sort of work its way into his dreams. See, my friend had grown so exhausted by the demands of school and service and work and grown so used to that loud, booming sound that he couldn't hear it anymore. Sort of unbelievable, even remarkable, but it's even more remarkable that many of us are so used to hearing this Christmas story and at the same time so exhausted by the demands of life and the rush of the holidays that we too are kind of just slumbering through Advent, sleeping through Christmas. My friend eventually broke his habit of slumber by committing to tie his foot to his bed and put the alarm just out of reach. He was a National Merit Scholar. You would have thought he'd come up with a better idea, but it worked. I thought he needed to lighten up his schedule. But how many of us are in our own dream, and we prefer our own dream to the reality of God. And Christmas proves to us that God's reality is so much better than anything we can dream. And what are we willing to do in order to wake up to the wonder of Christmas? And so this morning, I encourage all of us, I know we're distracted, to set aside your distractions, your worries, and anxieties, and let us marvel together over the best news ever. And so we're going to walk through this passage, and I want to just break it up into three parts. First of all, Gabriel's unexpected greeting and what it means, the implications of it. Second, Gabriel's incredible announcement and what this announcement provides. And then third, Mary's exemplar response and what it teaches us. So first, 
Gabriel's unexpected greeting and what it means. Look at verse 28. Gabriel greets Mary, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, it's hard to imagine how Gabriel could have found a more unlikely person to greet with such great news that she would become the mother of God. Martin Luther observed that God might have picked out someone like Caiaphas's daughter, who was fair, rich, clad in gold, but God preferred, preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. See, Mary really was from the wrong side of town, the wrong side of the tracks. She was lowly and poor, living in Nazareth, a town about which people question, can anything good come from Nazareth? She was young. Scholars put the usual age for betrothal in those days at around 12 or 13. So from a human perspective, she was as insignificant as you can get. As Kent Hughes wrote, Mary was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And yet this is the woman through whom God chose to break into history. Why? What was so special about Mary? Now, the Bible never says that Mary was without sin, nor that she remained a virgin, nor that she has an ability to give grace to sinners. No, Mary was a sinner who needed grace herself. And notice Gabriel's greeting. He says, greeting, O favored one. Now, the Greek word Gabriel used here for favor is the same root word used for grace. In other words, Mary is a recipient of grace. She's not deserving, nor is she prepared, nor experienced. She's not tested. But she's qualified because she's lowly and humble. Phil Riken said it this way, Mary is but the object of grace. And so Mary helps us not by giving us grace, but by showing us that God can give us the same kind of grace that he gave her. Do you ever feel like a nobody? Do you ever feel insignificant or overlooked or like you've maybe come from the wrong side of the tracks when you're hanging out with a particular group of people? If so, look at Mary's story and you can know that God favors the lowly. He pours out his grace on outsiders, on the weak, on the broken, on the marginalized, on those that the culture would view as least deserving. In fact, as you read through the gospel accounts, you see Jesus throwing out his grace or pouring out his grace upon those who marginalize themselves through their own sin. See, God favors the lowly. So if you are a person who feels least deserving, you are best situated to receive God's grace because you see more clearly than most, your need for God's grace. Now, some of you are here because it's Christmas and you're visiting just during the holidays and you may think that this church is not for those who are from the wrong side of the tracks and you look around and you, you notice people that are relatively wealthy and very well dressed and they are clean and tidy and uh, I'd like to mention that, that those of us who do dress up, we do so not because we believe we are better, but because God is worthy. Make no mistake, every single person here and every, sitting in every single seat is a broken, lowly person, an undeserving sinner. So do you struggle? Do you struggle with forgiveness? 
Do you struggle with depression or anxiety? Do you struggle with mental illness? Then you are welcome here. Do you carry heavy burdens, maybe, maybe a broken past that you have a hard time getting over or a, a sexual um, brokenness? Are you struggling with, with sort of a, a, a label of, of unemployment or divorce or, or financial duress or addiction? See, don't be confused by outward appearances. We are all undeserving sinners, and you are welcome here. And if you don't believe that we are needy sinners here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, I bid you just stick around for a little bit. And you will see we are in need of God's grace. And if you are in need of God's grace too, we hope that you will linger among us and revel in it with us and discover its power and beauty. So first, Gabriel's unexpected greeting is a greeting of grace, an undeserved favor, because it favors the lowly. Second, Gabriel's incredible announcement. What what does this provide? Look at verse 31. It says, And behold, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, And will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is an incredible announcement that his highest majesty, the most holy, not only favors the lowly, but he comes in humility and lowliness. Last week, We learn that Gabriel announced to Elizabeth and Zechariah in their old age that Elizabeth, who was barren, would conceive and give birth to a son, a prophet of God, John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner to this king. And this week, Gabriel announces to Mary that in her virginity, she will conceive the Son of God by the Holy Spirit, and this Jesus will reign as king forever. And these two stories in the Gospel of Luke are laid side by side so that we can compare and contrast them. There's two announcements, two pregnancies, two cousins. Both John and Jesus are born to godly women who, apart from divine intervention, would never be pregnant. There's two songs of praise, praise Mary's Magnificat and Zacharias Benedictus. The similarities are striking. Dr. Riken writes it this way, The birth of both cousins was announced by the same awesome angel, who told people not to be afraid, proclaimed the birth of a son, gave each child his name, explained his mission in life, answered questions, and gave confirming signs. Yet for all the similarities, the main thing Luke wants us to see is the differences. See, John's mother was barren. Jesus' mother was a virgin. John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. John would call out in the wilderness. Jesus would reign on the throne of David. John would be a prophet. Jesus would be a king. John would prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus would arrive as the Lord among us. Jesus is superior in every way, not simply by degree, but in kind. As biblical scholars point out, Jesus would be the last, I'm sorry, John would be the last prophet of the Old Covenant, and Jesus would be the one to whom all the prophets of the Old Covenant pointed, for he fulfilled all the promises. John would be called great before the Lord. Jesus would simply be called great 
without qualification because there's no real comparison. He will be great as the Lord. So the most majestic one comes in meekness. God comes in the flesh as an infant boy born to a poor peasant girl, not to anyone of significance or status. See, it's no accident that God enters the world this way, but it is shocking. But we learn something about God's intentions by the very way in which he enters the world. It's, it's an incredible announcement And if true, it provides us with a unique hope and unique resources for living life in a broken world. First, it it reframes our suffering. For we can know that we have a God who suffers with us. Look at verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy the Son of God. If Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit and not by a human father, that means that Jesus really is God with us. Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And therefore, God is not removed from human suffering. God suffers himself as a man. Now, anyone who suffers significantly in life knows the loneliness and alienation that arises when when you look around for family and friends, but you can't find anyone who understands what you have gone through, who has suffered as you have. But there is a unique comfort that's offered by those who've suffered as you have suffered. So it's little wonder why hurting people often join support groups to share with others who know a similar pain. Empathy provides deeply meaningful comfort. But just because someone can relate to our suffering doesn't guarantee that they'll be all that helpful or comforting. See, sometimes others are too consumed by their own pain to help us much through our pain. And so what we really desire and what we really need is we need a friend who not only can empathize with us in our pain because they have experienced it, but one who hasn't been disillusioned by it one who hasn't been exposed in bitterness, but, but exposed as wise. One who has not fallen into unbelief, but maintains a radical trust. One who isn't self-absorbed in their pain, but has an ability to see beyond their pain and remain tender and loving toward others. Wouldn't it be absolutely wonderful if you had a friend like that? See, Christmas gives us such a wise, empathetic, and loving friend in God himself. The God of the Bible knows weakness and hunger and poverty and pain in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows what it's like to be slandered and gossiped about. Do you think anyone really believed the the rumor that his mother was a virgin? Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be bullied by people who were too threatened to hear what he had to say and accept him for who he was. He He knows the receiving end of a whip of public humiliation, of injustice, and of cruel torture. But in his pain, Jesus never lost his ability to radically trust his heavenly Father and to continually be soft-hearted and tender toward others, even those who were causing the pain. In exhaustion, Jesus woke up 
before dawn to pray for his friends and disciples and their weaknesses. You see that throughout the Gospels. When falsely accused, he remained poised. When demands grew excessive and the disciples wanted to send the crowds home, Jesus lingered and he taught and fed and cared for the sheep. And when people attacked him on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. See, if Christmas is true, it changes everything. It means we never suffer alone because we have a God who shares in it with us. And it means we always have exactly the type of friend we need. One who really empathizes with the suffering, but never succumbs to bitterness or resentment or coldness. But one who is so perfect and loves us so much that he walks with us, carries our burdens, absorbs our pain, endures our bitter rants, and abides ever so faithfully by our side. He lingers with the brokenhearted. Do you have a friend like that? If so, I bet they know Jesus. Because you can only be a friend like that when you have a friend like that. And if you don't have a friend like that, you can. This is the wonder of Christmas. The greatest gift is not anything of creation, but God himself, the King of kings, who should never have stooped so low to be a friend of no names. But even more amazingly, he becomes a friend of sinners. And in Christmas, that's exactly what we get. The door to intimate friendship with God was opened in the womb of a teenage girl. And that reframes how we experience suffering. Secondly, it redirects our hope. Look at verse 31. You shall call his name Jesus, which means God saves. Christmas proves that our only hope of salvation comes from God himself. Listen, if we could fix ourselves, if we could rescue ourselves, we would have done it by now. God would not have bothered to come himself. If all we needed was education and good advice, then, all, then teachers and prophets and sages would have been sufficient to tell us what to do. The problem is we know what we should do. We just don't have the ability to do it. The problem is bigger. And I don't know about you. I've, I've grown a little bit um, tired of all the false promises made by advertisers, especially during the holidays. You name it, miracle cream that reverses aging, those headbands that have the red lights that restore hair growth, um, the latest New York Times best-selling self-help books. Not that all of that's bad. You can learn a lot. There's such a place, you know, for human wisdom. I haven't bought the headband yet. Um, I'm thinking about it. But for... All the progress that we've made as individuals and as human beings, whether through technology or medicine or education, I I hate to pop your bubble, but our world is still desperately broken. People are still people. Politics is as ugly as ever. Families are as broken as ever. Sex and romance for many people have gone off the rails. Cynicism about marriage and the blessings of a lifelong commitment is at its highest. And the same technology that brings un told blessings is being weaponized to cause untold grief and pain and injustice. Slavery continues in creatively new ways through human trafficking and sex trafficking. See, we are the most predictable and yet at the same time unpredictable of sinners. And despite all the progress, humanity is still desperately broken. But this should not surprise us. The Bible tells us as much 
And if the Bible is about anything, it's brutally honest about the human condition. It tells us in no uncertain terms that we are sinful people in rebellion to God and our sin is killing us and we cannot overcome it or fix it ourselves. Our sinfulness will taint every relationship and rust out every accomplishment in our lives. When my dad was uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, in January 2016, no one in my family was surprised. Over the holidays of 2015, dad looked even less healthy than usual. Uh, My dad was never the type of person that took good nutrition or regular exercise very seriously, but even the kids were noticing that dad um, or pop-pop looked kind of gray and yellow. My dad died within four months. Now, while researching pancreatic cancer during my dad's illness, I came across a YouTube video of a professor at Carnegie Mellon University uh, named Randy Pausch, who had also been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, like my dad. He wrote a New York Times bestseller titled, My Last Lecture. And during the lecture, Randy was upbeat and humorous, shrugging off the pity that often comes with those diagnosed with terminal illness. And at one point, to prove his own vitality, uh, Randy dropped down and did push-ups on the stage. Now, my dad's sickness was quite evident, but Randy Pausch's sickness, well, he didn't look sick at all. He could do more push-ups than I could. Yet both men still died within months because cancer was killing them and there was nothing they could do to change that devastating reality. Here's the sobering news of Christmas. We have all been diagnosed with stage four sin. And sure, the symptoms are much more evident in the lives of some of you as you look around and look at others in this church. You might think that their symptoms aren't very noticeable, but make no mistake, everyone has this cancer and it is killing us. Its corrupting power touches every part of our lives every relationship, every thought, every emotion. And sure, the appearance of lasting good health lingers, but that's only because of God's common, sustaining grace that gives us a moral compass and concern for our neighbor and a desire to do good. But the cancer of sin remains in the heart and mind, and it corrupts everything, and it always metastasizes and leads to death. No exception. See, we cannot save ourselves, we cannot cure ourselves, we cannot educate our way out of this or manage our way out of this. In order to be healed, it will take a miracle, a true bona fide miracle, and that is the hope of Christmas. Jesus came as that miracle. He is the God who saves. And there is no rescue from sin and death outside of God's intervention. The miracle of Christmas redirects our hope from us to God. Listen, every other religious system, even secular humanism, which wouldn't consider itself a religious system, but every system outside of the Bible bases its ultimate hope for humanity on humanity, what we can do to fix things, whether it's through religious activity, moral living, or scientific advancement. But the gift of Christmas changes that. Because the gift of God is himself who has come to do what in our most honest moments we know we cannot do ourselves. He was born into a world of sin and he lived the life that you and I know 
We know we should be living, but we don't live it. And he did that in order to save us from the life we have lived and to be death in our place as our substitute. And the miracle of Christmas is that God is with us and he came near to rescue us in every way that we need to be saved. So it reframes our suffering, it redirects our hope. Lastly, it reestablishes glory in the day-to-day. See, when God broke into the material world through the womb of a Jewish peasant girl, God was declaring that despite all the sin, all the corruption, all the brokenness, all the rebellion, all that ugliness, that, that there's still some good in the world worth fighting for. The real question is, why should God care about this world? this physical, material world, this earth, these people. The ancient gods didn't. East or West, ancient Western cultures held that the physical world was dirty, base, and unredeemable. Read Plato. Only the spiritual was considered worthy and good. Eastern cultures saw the physical world as not bad, but as an illusion from which we must be freed. See, neither perspective perspective provided the gods with much motivation for caring about this world and caring to redeem it. But the biblical view of creation, of our universe, is utterly different. God creates the world with purpose and direction and in joy and in delight. And in Genesis 1, at the song of creation, God is creating everything and declaring it good. It starts out good. And even though it's gone all bad because of our sin and rebellion, and everything's been corrupted, God has a redemptive plan, a purpose, and a glorious future to restore everything to its former glory. But how did he do it? What did it take? What did it require? Well, he had to get his hands dirty. And so he came. The Holy One came near in meekness. The spiritual one became material. The ideal became real by taking on flesh and blood, as Tim Keller said. And unfortunately, reality beat him up, beat him bloody. See, things had to get worse before they got better. And they got so bad at one point that even John the Baptist, the the one who's leaping for joy at the announcement of Jesus' birth in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, even he began to doubt as he sees the corruption and defilement of the world and he's about to get his head cut off by Herod. So he sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you really the one? Or should we look for another? And Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. See, everything Jesus touched was restored. And only Christmas gives us a God who cares enough about creation to get his hands dirty in order to fix it through his own blood, sweat, and tears. And that changes everything. Do you understand what that changes? The implication of all this, that God cares not just about the big things, not just about supernovas, he's not just about winding up the universe, but that he cares for his people, for little things, day-to-day things, things that most people would say are not all that important. But when God came in the person of Jesus Christ and lived a common man's life, he was bestowing glory on the day-to-day mundane stuff of life. Why was God born a baby? To show us that there's unique glory even among the weakest and most dependent upon us. To give dignity to the weak and vulnerable. Jesus had a childhood. He obeyed his parents. He did his chores. 
Kids, there's more glory and simple obedience to mom and dad than you can imagine. Jesus worked as a carpenter. There's glory in manual labor. And despite pressure from the demanding crowds, Jesus made time for children. Don't forget there's glory in play. That's a subtle plug for the nursery volunteers, by the way. I mean, we could go on and on. The point is, the Christmas as a true story restores glory to the mundane stuff of life because we have a God who entered in the flesh and cared about the little things and seeks to fight for every square inch of his creation, redeem all of it, and he's continuing to work through his people who are his hands and feet. So how do we respond to this best gift ever that reframes suffering, that redirects our hope, and that reestablishes glory? Well, we can learn a lot from Mary Mary's response here teaches us three important things very quickly. First, the importance of just being honest, honest inquiry. inquiry. Remember Mary's response to Gabriel's news? How can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel comforts her and provides more information. Zechariah also questioned Gabriel when the angel told him that his wife would get pregnant at her old age. And he says, how shall I know this? And the angel says, because you don't believe, you'll be mute until the baby's born. So Gabriel's response to Zechariah was very different than his response to Mary. Why? Well, some believe it's simply because Zechariah was old and cynical and he should have known better and Mary was young and naive and she's given a break because she's a teenage girl. But others suggest that, that Zechariah's question evidences real doubt Whereas Mary's question evidence is not doubt, but wonder. Zechariah is asking, how can I know this? Prove it. Where Mary's asking, how can this happen? Tell me more. Now, Gabriel gave each person exactly what they needed to prepare their hearts to receive the gift. He rebukes Zechariah and silences him for months so that he can think about it and wonder at God's gift. But he comforts Mary and tells her about Elizabeth, her cousin. And as Jesus grows up, he would do the same thing when he brings healing into people's lives. See, Jesus was always very personal in his healing. Sometimes he would heal people at a distance, sometimes with a word, sometimes with a touch, sometimes immediately, sometimes progressively and in stages. And it's strange that he does this until you realize that how he heals is just as important as what he heals. Because that's how much he loves you. There's healing in the way that you're healed, not just in removal of the struggle. Listen, I I would encourage you, if an angel shows up and tells you that a miracle is going to happen and seems believable, you, you should believe him. But let me also comfort you that God knows your heart. He knows your struggles and your doubts. So just ask your question, whatever it is. Be honest like Zachariah. And if you want to prepare your heart to receive the best gift ever, bring your honest question, whether it's like Mary or Zechariah, but brace for the response. See, both Zechariah and Mary ultimately trusted the angel and surrendered to God's plan. Zechariah took a little longer. He trusts slowly, but the joy of it eventually overcomes him as he realizes he's going to be a dad while his peers are becoming granddads or even great-granddads. Mary trusts God to do the impossible, seemingly without hesitation, despite having to face many fears and she'd have to sacrifice her reputation, her relationships with her family, her future with Joseph. 
And Mary says right there in verse 38, Behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. See, how do you respond to the best gift ever? First, you've got to ask your questions honestly, but then you have to be willing to listen to the answer and trust it. You have to surrender your fears and cynicism. You have to yield and believe and embrace. And really, it's as simple as that. You have to decide. And so what will you decide? But after Mary's decision to believe and to trust, the first thing Mary does is she she travels to Nazareth, to Judah, to see the only other person who would understand what she's going through, her cousin Elizabeth. And when she gets there, Elizabeth greets her. The baby in her womb leaps for joy. They exclaim with joy and bless one another and encourage one another. And this is the way it is, isn't it? When we trust in the Lord, that's a personal decision. It happens in a moment, and it happens in many moments over the season of of our lives. But but growing in faith doesn't happen in isolation. It, It happens in community. Walking with God happens when we're walking with others who who've received the same good news and they get it and they can rejoice with us and they they can encourage us and they can pray and share in our joys and our sorrows. And so when these two ladies get together who've received this good news, they're filled with rejoicing all the more as they reflect what God has promised and what he has accomplished through them. And it leads to worship. And we see Mary worship in verse 46 with this beautiful song, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. See, she received the good news from the angel. She believed the good news, but to make full sense of it, to revel in it, to rejoice in it, it happened in community. And that's why hopefully you're here this morning. So if you're like my friend Mark and you're snoozing through this loud, booming announcement, the best news ever, well, hopefully you're awake. And whatever dreams are distracting you, hopefully you'll realize that when you awake to the wonders of Christmas, the reality of God for you is better than any dream you have for yourself. Christmas offers the best gift ever, the best news ever, but it will interrupt your life and it will change your life. Let us pray. God, we thank you that we are recipients of such amazing grace, not because we are worthy, but because you are good. We thank you that this amazing gift the best gift. It's nothing of this creation. It's you yourself coming into your broken, sinful, rebellious world to heal it. And that reframes everything. Our suffering, it it redirects our hope from ourselves to you. It reestablishes glory and meaning in everything. And God, I pray for any here who have not received this gift that you would so work in their heart by the power of your spirit to give them the courage to ask what any remaining questions they have, skeptical or believing, and that you would work through that to bring them to saving faith like Mary, like Zachariah, so they can revel in this good gift, that they can trust the answer and surrender and then embrace the community and grow in their appreciation and wonder of this beautiful reality that God is with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.